I mean, he's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 78 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. This week on the show, we've got Dagan Moriarty, animator, character designer, podcaster, retro nerd. So Dagan's main job, he's a Sesame Workshop animator, so they do all the animation and cartoons for Sesame Street, including Elmo's World. But he's also worked with Nickelodeon Cartoon Network in a whole variety of ways. I don't get a lot of artists on the show, so it was really interesting to talk to Dagan about the creative process, how he got from a hobby to a profession in art, and that decision to go into TV and to go into cartoons as opposed to something like, I don't know, graphic design or architecture or one of the fine arts, the high culture arts. But no, instead he's an animator. You might have seen his work on the Kind of Funny animated series. That was probably my first introduction to what he was doing. And then with his brother Colin, known from his work in video games at IGN, Kind of Funny, and now Colin's Last Stand, Dagan's come in to do a show, a nostalgia podcast, basically discussing with Colin things from their childhood, whether it's skateboarding, video stores, Transformers, Star Wars toys, pretty much anything that takes you back to childhood. And that's a great podcast. And that was kind of my introduction to Dagan as a personality. So it was great to sit down and chat with him for so long and uh, get into the world of animation. And if you're already a fan of Dagan's podcast, Knockback, then you might be interested in my interview with Colin, his brother, which came out in February, I think. So go back and check that interview out as well. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, or this is your first episode and you enjoy it, I really hope that you'll leave an iTunes review. It helps a lot. It gets the show out there. It bumps you up the algorithm, gets you in the charts. And that's really something that you can do for me if you're feeling kind. And if you don't have iTunes, just tell a friend. It all helps. Word of mouth. Old school. So without further ado, here is Dagan Moriarty. Enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me, Dagan. It's awesome to have you here. Uh, thanks so much for having me, John. It's awesome. I'm super flattered that you would ask, actually. Oh. Well, you're a man of many talents from, from what I've observed, <laughs> so thanks, it'll be interesting to hear all about it. Well, thank you. For people who don't know, you're a Sesame Workshop animator. What does that involve? What my team does is we do all... I don't know how familiar you are with Sesame Street, Jono. I don't know how, much, how often you're watching uh, Not Sesame. lately, no. <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit old school with my, uh, my Sesame Street. Well, you know there. who Elmo is. I do. I know Elmo. I know Oscar and the classics. Okay, so you know Elmo. You know a little bit. I know the Muppets. The Muppet, like the puppet ones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the Count and Bert and Ernie. Yeah, go on. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so you know all the classics. That's all you really need to know. But... So on Sesame Street nowadays they do there's a five minute a five minute in show sequence called Elmo's World, mm-hmm. um, and we my team does all the animation and compositing for that show, and now we're working on all the animation and compositing for a brand new five minute segment in addition to the Elmo segments that I can't talk too much about yet. Right. I think it will premiere in season forty nine or season fifty. I'm not wow, 50 sure about that, but. Yeah, yeah, awesome. the 50th anniversary is coming up, which is also really exciting. So that's what we do. That's what my team does. And, um, you know, we do other stuff. We do a lot. You know, the company will come to us sort of in a creative services capacity, but for the animation projects. Hmm. So basically, this the, the, we're, you know, we're the in-house animation team at Sesame Workshop, which is uh, we're very proud of because I think in that capa- working in that specific capacity, we're a little over a year in. Right. So we're like super proud of ourselves because Sesame's never had that, and we just feel very special that we were the guys to, to do that. You know, I think we just kind of lucked up, but 
We like to think it's, it was it was more. Yeah, I'm than sure that, it was. You know, it had a lot to do with my charm. I think. Yeah, I'm sure the Emmy is, is because <laughs> of you guys as well. There yeah. you go. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> and so you've actually been with those guys for quite a few years now, yeah? Yeah. So I've been at Sesame Workshop since 2009. I think I started in October 2009. And when we initially started, when I initially started over there, it was in- really super interesting, actually, because well, I hope it's interesting to hear the story. But <laughs> but what happened was one of the senior vice presidents of the company had a, he kind of founded a division which was in in essence, it was really Sesame Japan, quote unquote. But what it really was, was in Japan, the education model there is that the kids go to school all day, normal school day. And then in the evenings, many of them attend something called cram schools, which is something it's a it's a schooling system sort of designed to teach kids English in a curriculum based way. So basically, they go to school to learn English, but they're also learning math. And science and social studies and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and these cram schools are sort of, the infrastructure is sort of built and integrated and um, sort of carried through by these, by companies. So we worked for a huge cram school company in Japan, a big client. um, And we basically, it was basically a Sesame Street based curriculum. So think of everything from like flashcards and you know actual tangible workbooks and coloring sheets and coloring books and stuff like that all the way through to all the multimedia components um you know animation interactive games um and we did this entire package for this cram school which took us i guess thinking about it we did we did a first wave and a second wave so i guess all told it was probably about five years worth of of work for us that we basically filmed, you know, formed a division of the company around it. And then what had happened was everybody on my team, we all came from, most of us came from television animation, at least on the creative side. A lot of guys came up working on Blue's Clues. A lot of guys were at Nickelodeon. I, you know, did a lot of stuff for Cartoon Network. So a lot of guys came through the TV animation thing. So our team, as the work dried up for the Japanese client, our team sort of became Sesame Street's in-house animation team which sesame workshop never had that sesame workshop was always a um purely a contract model like all the animated shorts that you see on sesame street even spanning back from the 60s all the way through today that's that was all done like a on an independent filmmaker basis they would just go out and get people that they were interested in working with never had an in-house animation team was all outsourced so we kind of became that and got more and more work and sort of operated like, sort of like operated like an outside contractor initially. Like we had to bid for work as if we were an outside animation studio. And sort of just slowly became Sesame Street's in-house animation division, which we grew out of that, you know, the original work that all the stuff we did for Japan, which was really interesting. So that's what we do. So let's backtrack a little and talk about getting sure. into art. I know that you've talked about this um, with Colin before when you've been on his podcast, but yeah, you were you know always into drawing and that kind of thing. So I'm interested what made you realize that it was something more than just a hobby like it is for a lot of people, but it could be something that you'd turn into your entire career. Yeah, you know what? So I have to take it back to, I've spoken about this before, but it really all comes back to one person and that was my grandpa. Mm. His, name was Al- his name was Alessandro, but his Ruggiero. But he, he went as Alexander, you know. He was the first generation Italian. You know, his mom came over on the boat from, from Italy. And, you know, he was the first generation born in, in the States. 
And he was always a really, really big artist. He loved art, but he didn't do it for a living. So my grandfather was actually a beautician. He was a hairdresser. He had a hair salon. He owned and operated a hair salon in downtown Manhattan, and that's what he did for his career. But that's its own form of art, really. Which is which really is, you know. And he always grew up cutting my hair too, which I have a lot of funny stories about that as well. And you know, he had, um, you know, being in New York as you would, you know, he had some, you know, he had some famous clients and stuff like that. So it was that he was a really interesting man, but he really loved art. That's really what made him tick. I always tell people a funny story about him because he was never a big sports guy or anything like that. But he watched, you're familiar with Bob Ross? Yeah, the painter. Yeah, The painter. He watched Bob Ross like it was a competitive team sport. <laughs> like he would yell at the screen and be like, you know, cursing and be like, no, you're ruining it. You know, why are you adding that color? Like he, he was hilarious with that. But he, super, super... Really, that's what made him tick was art, and he was a really wonderful draftsman, a really wonderful artist. He was great at drawing, and he attended the Art Students League at night in New York, which was, you know, which was basically a, you know, a group of people that came together to do life drawing and stuff like that on a weekly or even nightly sometimes basis. And he, I, you know, he passed away when I was about. My grandfather passed away. I'm 44 now. I guess he passed away when I was 23 or 24 so I never really got to pick his brain like I wanted to as an adult but I know he used to tell me anecdotes about going to the art students league at night and he would be in there with a lot of professional animators in New York at the time and cartoonists so you know guys that worked at Terry Tunes and I guess guys that formerly worked at Fleischer and Ralph Bakshi had his thing going on at New York at the time so I think my grandfather was sort of rubbing elbows with a lot of those guys at the Art Students League at night doing life drawing and such. And I think he always had a part of him that was frustrated that he didn't go into it for a living. So I remember sure. being as little as like four or five years old and him sitting me down. I have very vivid memories of this, like him sitting me down and teaching me how to draw Mickey Mouse with like, you know, he would sketch lightly in the circles and break it down you know, as you see animators do on television, stuff like that, you know, it's teach me how like, you know, the underlying shapes and sort of sketching yeah. that in. And he, it, you know, I was always, that was like, you know, as a four or five year old, you're looking at this, like, I, what kind of magic is this? That this, how is that coming out of the pencil? You know, it's just that sort of thing just grabbed me from a very early age. And even when he colored in like a coloring book with me, the way he would blend the colors and do like the subtle gradation from light to dark, you know, it was it was so different than sitting down and drawing with any other adult in my life because you could just see what he was capable of and it was magical to me and I just wanted to be able to do that. So he was the one who really got the hooks in and I think because he showed me drawing through cartoons and animation that always kind of stuck with me. You know, and as I got older sure. it became, you know, as it is for a lot of us, you know, the cartoons that we grow up with. Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and all that. And then, you know, so I, I got older into the early 80s when I was like six or seven years old with the initial anime stuff that we were seeing on television like Voltron and Robotech and Battle of the Planets and all that kind of stuff. So that's where, but he was the one who sort of got it, the ball rolling for me. And, you know, I always think about that because I, I think if I didn't have that, who knows, you know? So that was the, that, that was the genesis of it for, for me. And he was encouraging you along the way, I imagine. Yeah, he was always so super proud. Um, 
always super encouraging. And you know what else he, he brought up in me? Not only him, but my parents as well. You know, it might be, you know, sort of a reason why I want to do, why I'm just naturally the commercial artist and why I love to share my work is because I used to love to do something as a kid and then show him. And I think because I loved the praise and I also loved that he would say, oh, you know, that's really good, but you know, check this out. You could do, you could do, you do put this little light, little catch light in his eye and you could like make it pop a little more. Like he, the way he would, it was sort of a hybrid between him encouraging me and making me feel good and also showing me how to improve in a, you know, in a sort of a really a loving way. And I used yeah. to love, also my parents weren't necessarily, my parents are very creative people, but they weren't necessarily artists, quote unquote. Although I think my dad could have been had he gone in that direction but they were also always very encouraging and I used to love to do it I used to I feel like I used to do a drawing just to be able to show it you know I always loved that I always loved the process of doing a doing a piece and then you know sharing it I couldn't imagine I think then and now I can't imagine doing art in a vacuum you know just doing an art and putting it in a pile never sharing it with somebody I think the joy that somebody gets out of your art you know hopefully if it resonates with somebody on some level I think that's what makes it so satisfying for me and my you know my grandfather brought really brought that out in me you know i think he's the one who really showed me that okay and what was the path like i imagine that like you're at school and you're drawing and you're pretty good at it but when does it become something that you're not just like i said doing as a hobby but you're actually seeing something that could become a career in a way that it wasn't for your grandfather for example that's a great question. You know what's funny about it, Jono? I don't think I was really that great. I did. I always loved drawing. I always loved sitting down. I think it was another thing for me of I would get inspired by a, a comic book or, you know, especially with me, a cartoon. I think it, expressing my excitement about something, I would, you know, get really excited about an uh, episode of Battle of the Plants and I would want to go sit down and draw it. That was just my way of expressing my excitement for it, I think. But I don't think I was ever really that great at it. As much as I enjoyed it, I remember in sixth grade sitting down and drawing something being like, you know, just, just I don't know, doodling in class or something being like, why am I not better at this? <laughs> you know, like I remember there was a mark, marked time where I was like, why, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm good. I don't feel like I'm very good at this. And I think what had happened was later on, really much later, I always enjoyed art. But I was never really encouraged by any teachers or anything like that. No one ever saw anything in me until high school when I had, I always remember her. Her name was Mrs. Naylor. And she was a really sweet lady, but a very like, if you think of a quote unquote typical art teacher, the way they're portrayed on like a cartoon or something like the big bobbly necklace, you know, and the sort of out there philosophy and very lighthearted and sort of like the Stevie Nicks type as far as the way they dressed and stuff like that. Like really like kind of bohemian and, you know, neat, kind of cool. I think she was pretty young. And she, ha- I had her for, I took a, it was like an ad design class. It was like doing logos and stuff like that, which I was really interested in. I thought that would be kind of neat. But what it, what it was, was it was like a little elective thing. It wasn't like a traditional, you know, as you have in high school, public high school, like an art one, two, three, four track where the serious artists draw and paint and maybe prep a portfolio for college, that sort of thing. It was sort of like a little elective thing. And I remember her in ninth grade because our, our high school growing up on Long Island, high school was 9, 10, 11, 12. Sure. So... In ninth grade, my freshman year in high school, she took me aside and was like, I know you're having fun with this, but you should really be on like an art track. So she was the first one to see something in whatever I was doing in her class. And she said, I'm going to, you have to go into Mr. Fight, 
his name was Mr. Fight. You have to go on to, into his class. He's the one who sort of grooms the, you know, however she broke it down. Yeah. Like she used, you know, you have to go over and learn how to draw and paint with him and stuff like that. So Mr. Fight. So I always knew about Mr. Fight because he was a, you know, a known cantankerous personality in school. You know, he was like one of these dudes that was like, you know, almost think of like the strict English teacher, but he happened to be an art right. teacher, sort of an anomaly. Like that, mess with that's him, not yeah. really a thing usually. And I remember in 10th grade and he came into the class and he took me aside. He took me into the back room, like the storage room where they kept all the art supplies, the clay and all the drawing stuff and painting stuff. And he shut the door Uh-oh. and he was like, listen, he's like, I know we don't know each other yet, but <laughs> he, this is what he said to me. I didn't even know this guy. He was like, I am going to ride you until you graduate as a senior. You know, you want to go, you're serious about going to art school, blah, 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 blah. Then this is what we're going to do. Not in, you know, a wise ass or funny way. Like, he was serious. You know, it was like, it was like, it was strange. It was almost, I don't know, it was almost like uh, boot camp or something. You know, it almost felt like full metal jacket or something. And uh, I was like, all right. He was an interesting guy, Mr. Fight, because he, first of all, he was a very, prolific and known artist out on long island which it's a very long island there's a side of long island that is a very artsy fartsy place you know it's the suburbs of new york city there's a lot of people on long island so there's a lot of talented artists working out there and a lot of art communities and stuff like that so he was a very known and prolific artist and very very talented draftsman i remember his pencil drawings were exquisite so he had a lot of talent to back himself up but he was he was very very vocally against commercial art he was one of those old school guys really steeped in his ways and as you know and he would just tell me like animation is shit illustration is shit (laughs) graphic design is shit like it's not about that's not art like he would say that he's about like the high culture the fine arts the the, fine arts you know whatever that you know whatever galleries and exactly the whole scene the opera whatever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I had to think about it. If I had, I had my grandfather on one end and then I had Mr. Fight on the other end, you know, the other, and he knew what I was interested in. He knew I was interested in animation and anime and he would just try to pull me away from that. And he did teach me how to draw and paint. And what he also did was he taught me how to think outside the box and he encouraged that. But the problem is with his philosophy and being too opinionated with somebody at that age, I think is that you might be taking away the thing that is that person's source of why they want to do it in the first place. In other words, if I'm really excited about Japanese cartoons and that's what's making me want to draw and paint and maybe even think about pursuing it for a living, and that's what gets me up in the morning and that's what gets me excited about art, then you should probably let somebody run, a kid run with that instead of trying to mold them in your image. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So Mr. Fight was interesting because he taught me a lot I, you know, and I think I think his philosophy and the mistakes he made, as far as I perceive it, also taught me a lot. So I was lucky to have, you know, the art upbringing that I had. And I also have to mention one other person who is my mom's cousin, Carl. His name is Carl. He was my grandfather's nephew and also a very, very talented, very prolific artist. He was a fashion illustrator back in his heyday. Brilliant. A brilliant man. And he was another mentor to me growing up especially when I became a teenager who kind of took me under his wing and showed me a lot about drawing and painting and art and shared his joy with me about the artists that he admired everyone from Pablo Picasso to Michelangelo and taught me a lot about art history so he Carl was another 
extremely important figure in my in my life as far as my art upbringing and you know what I was lucky enough to go on to do in life I think without those people you know I certainly wouldn't be the same person or be in the position I'm in today so you know those three guys were like the three main components you know as far as art goes yeah sure that's cool and so you, you go off to college is it a pressure there as well for you to go into something that's more high culture rather than cartoons basically because i know that like that's the majority of what your career has been since then and sure and when, when did you decide like i don't care about what you know mr fight and college and all my <laughs> my friends here that are gonna do i'm gonna do cartoons you know it's a great it's a really great point john and it really does play into the way I approached things because what had happened was I always laugh about this and tell people this. I kind of sort of broke, not that I'm the only person that ever did this, but I sort of broke the mold and actually left New York to go to art school. You know, most people come to New York to go to art, to art school. But so I think because of those pressures that I was sort of feeling about, well, is being an illustrator and being an animator, being a sellout, like, is that really not something that I should pursue. What I had chosen to do was instead of going to an art school where I would have had that formative fine art tradition instilled in me, you know, sort of like a school of visual arts or a Pratt, Parsons, Cooper Union, all the big art schools in New York that were sort of steeped in that tradition of drawing and painting. I went straight to Philadelphia and went straight into an animation program, which Uh I started school in the mid 90s. And that Animation as a major was not a big thing yet. You had some schools like CalArts out west, and you had place like places up in Canada, like Sheridan and Van Arts and stuff like that. But mostly, it wasn't a thing to go to school for animation yet. And there was a program in Philly where you could go straight into animation, and it was sort of a, I don't want to call it a trade school, but it was sort of approached in that sort of trade school capacity is where you went in and were groomed as an animator right away. In all fairness, I had a lot of art, fine art upbringing as far as life drawing and learning how to draw and paint. Not that I could have, couldn't have used more of that. I certainly could have used more, but I, I think, I think pulled away from that by going to school where I did and just jumping right into animation, which I was very ambitious to do. And I also, I started college a little late. I took about a year and a half off between high school and college, much to my parents' horror, because they thought I was never going to go. And I knew I just needed a break after high school. Like, I really just needed a break. And they were just horrified. Like, don't, you can't take a break. You're never going to go. And I, I just knew I was going to go. I just needed a rest, you know. And my grandfather would always be on top. What he, another thing he always told me was never waste your talent. Don't waste your talent. I remember him telling me that from, like, but I was 10 years old. He would say it to me constantly. Like, remember, don't waste your talent. Like, I don't know if that was something that where he felt like he could have gone into what he really loved and didn't. And he didn't want me to make the same mistake. But that was always a thing in my ear, you know. Sure. So I think really where I went to school in Philly, that was a big part of me pulling away from wanting to do, you know, from like, you know, I'm not going to be a fine artist. That's not what's in my heart. You know, I love drawing and painting. I love walking into a gallery and appreciating works of art. My wife is a very is actually a very very talented painter and fine artist. So I really admire it, but for me I knew my passion was cartoons. So for me jumping into going to school in Philly and going to school where I did that was a big part of it for me. I don't um regret that. 
I think it was really, I had a lot of wonderful professors, a lot of people that were passionate. First time I saw adults that were not only passionate about animation, but knowledgeable about it. Some of them had worked or were working in the industry. So it was really exciting for me, you know, and that sort of pulled me out of that, you know, that sort of, you know, thing where I was like schizophrenic, like, am I a fine artist or is that shit? Am I... You know, if I go into commercial art, is that okay? So that sort of pulled me away from that finally and sort of pulled me over to the side where I, I knew I always really wanted to be. And then I graduated in 98. So that was, that, that awesome. was the story with that. Yeah. And I like that you kind of dabbled in both sides and decided what was right for you. It reminds me of like a drummer that starts off in the marching band and does a bit of jazz, but he's like, no, I'm a punk rocker. I'm going to go and like do the music that I want to play. That's really right. Cool. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great that's a great way to put it. And you know, the marching band stuff and the jazz and the classical music that you you could take that over with you, yeah, and apply it to what you're really passionate yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm. so that I think that is, yeah, that's well said. So on like the technical side of it, how did you develop your style and ability as an animator? Because I imagine like someone like myself, I've become quite good at copying things, but I've never been able to just create something out of my head from scratch or look at a person and then draw them as a cartoon, like a Simpsons character or something. So how did you kind of right. develop that side of it? And how important is that in your industry? That's a really great question, Jono. When you talk about style, it's something I'm really, I, I think about a lot because it's very hard to put into words. I think what happens when an artist develops a style, I think it's just a culmination of everything that resonates with you over the years. And you sort of just kind of pull things in and draw things in and collect them somewhere, you know, inside your head and inside your heart. And I think that combination of elements, you know, sort of comes out as your of those things that you love and those things that you enjoy or those things that you want to copy. You know, that all comes out in your work. And I think what had what happens is you you sort of pull the things that you enjoy about something into what you do. I knew that you know, for instance, I'll, I'll put it this way, traditional American superhero comic books, and I don't mean to put everything, all of that inside of one box, but if you just think about the traditional, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I was born in 73, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s into the 90s, and the traditional superhero comics of that era, if you think of all the DC and Marvel stuff, Superman, Batman, you know, even the early X-Men stuff, whatever, it didn't really resonate with me, the sort of men in tights, realistically drawn, every detail is in there, it's beautiful, but it never really did anything for me. I always knew that manga and anime art, there was something about it that the the gra and when I say graphic, I don't mean like the tentacle X-rated <laughs> stuff. I mean visually yeah, yeah. graphic elements oh, of it. Oh, that stuff always really resonated with me. The way it was drawn, with just enough detail, the elegance of it, the graphic, the bold graphic nature of it. I always that simplicity and sort of coolness. Everything always looked cool. Every drawing always looked right. That sort of graphic approach to art. I knew even before I could put it into words as a kid, that always really appealed to me. So I, I would pull things in along the way, you know, things that sort of come up, you know, not only in, in, in cartoons and art, but in life. But, you know, things like Ren and Stimpy, things like old UPA cartoons from the 50s and like serial commercials. Huh. And later on when, 
Gendy Tartakovsky and Craig McCracken created Dexter's Laboratory and Powerpuff Girls. Everything along the way of things that I enjoy, you sort of just pull these things in. You know, illustrators that I loved, indie comic books. Yeah. So I guess it's similar to, to music and, and writing in that sense where you emulate your heroes but put your own personal flavor to it. Yeah, you take those, you take elements from, that's a, that's a great way to say it. You take elements of what your heroes do and you sort of build your own thing out of that and find your own voice through that. And I think it's not just art. I think it's really important to look outside of you know, you look at film, something you enjoy that a filmmaker does, whether it's, you know, a Steven Spielberg or an Alfred Hitchcock, video games, you look at, you know, you could look at a landscape outside your window, anything that you, you know, the color of the sky, anything that sort of resonates with you. And I think that's a, it's just a collection of things over the years. It's, it's interesting because I know a lot of really talented artists that, you know, say like, I don't, it's so weird. Like I can't develop a style or I haven't developed a style, but you have one. You just don't know how to sort of round it up and pull it out of yourself yet. I think everybody has those things. It's just a sort of a, it's sort of putting it into practice as far as like just pulling it out of you and putting it on the page, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it. And I think that's really what style (laughs) breaks down to. And I think, you know, I think that's really why somebody has a style. I think that's just, it's, art style is such a special thing to me and I think that's why style resonates with me because it's such a personal thing even if an artist isn't trying to be personal or, or give you a glimpse into their soul I think a person's style an artist's style is really a glimpse into their soul because it's everything that they want to do they're spending their time doing it a certain way and that says a lot the way they're doing it says a lot about that artist so yeah I love that question man I love being able to have the opportunity to talk about that you know, hopefully I'm yeah, making thanks. sense talking yeah. about that. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff, Dagan. So let's talk through after college, you enter the wide world, the real world, the scary world. How do you go about finding actual work? And what was the kind of trajectory from there to Sesame, which I guess is probably the most steady work that you've had and could have for quite some time yeah. if you wish to continue it. Yeah, well said. It is it is the steadiest work I've had for some time. Well, you know, it's in, I was really I consider myself really lucky. Guys like me, that are around my age and also maybe a little younger, who came out of school in the late '90s, because what we did was we were able to go. We were sort of the last vestige, quote unquote, of at least for a little while, of being able to go to school and learn traditional animation, traditional hand drawn animation. So pre-computers, do you mean? Pre-computer, but also not really pre-computer for me because we went to school at sort of a pivotal time because what had happened was after we initially took our quote-unquote foundation, animation foundation stuff, which was learning the principles of animation, timing, how to draw, how to put together a pencil test and film it, you know, just learning storyboarding, learning all the fundamentals, even, even in my school at that time, in the mid-90s, we were able to sort of choose a track. And those tracks were traditional hand-drawn animation, or you could go to you could go to you know sort of pursue a 3D track, which at that time we were they were working on 3D Studio Max software, which was mostly stuff for gaming. And so you could sort of choose essentially what you were choosing was a TV track or a video game track. They didn't say that, but that's technically what it was. And also at that time, Maya. The software Maya, which is also, you know, which is even today, you know, a widely used software for TV and commercials and feature film. 
um, that was even jumping off. A lot of guys I went to school with that were sort of very early players in 3D animation were starting Maya even in the mid-90s. And a lot of those guys are at Blizzard now. You know, they're over at Blizzard or Rockstar. You know, a lot of those guys sort of got dug in to those companies early. And so you could either, you know, I was very fortunate to, to be in the position to choose at that time. And we, we had traditional training and we were able to draw on paper and flip the pages like you see on like an animation documentary, yeah. a Disney documentary or something and learn, really learn the, the backbone and the foundation of what animation is. And when I came out of school in the late 90s, you're young enough to remember this and possibly be a kid to enjoy this sort of stuff. CD-ROMs were a big thing, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So we were working on all the animation and and all the media for the CD-ROM games, which were done by like big companies, Fisher Price and Knowledge Adventure, and Sierra was still doing stuff at that time. So we got dug in to either work in TV in a traditional animation capacity or work on this CD-ROM game thing, which was a way for us to sort of put all the traditional animation stuff that we were taught into practice and do it for, for a living. And that lasted for a couple of years, um, whether you were in TV or whether you were in, you know, doing the CD-ROM stuff, that lasted for a couple of years until the internet really, until that really jumped off and became a major thing. And then that grew into the dot-com thing and went flash, you know, quote-unquote flash animation started mm-hmm. and doing all the stuff for the big internet companies. Nickelodeon had nick.com. Cartoon Network had their thing. Everybody had something at that point. And their online destinations were a big thing because, you know, think about it. This was pre-smartphone. So every they wanted their kids on their websites playing their games and checking out their content. So we were able to do a lot of stuff for that also, especially Nick.com in New York, you know, doing all the SpongeBob interactive games and whatever it was at that time, uh, CatDog and all the earlier Nickelodeon stuff. Two Angry Beavers. Is that that's one? Yeah, right? Angry Beavers. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh man, Angry Beavers. I right? remember this stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. So that you know that was where we kind of sort of came out of school. So we were very fortunate because there was different things that we could you know were you going to go into feature film? Were you going to go into video games? TV. We had the CD-ROM thing for a little while. The internet stuff with the dot com boom, and then when the dot com crash happened, which was around nine eleven, that sort of became a really marked period for, you know, what what are we going to do now? A lot of the work dried up, especially in New York. I spent most, I should also preface this by saying, I spent most of my career in New York. I spent a little time working out in LA. I spent about six months in LA. And I worked at, in various studios in various places in the Northeast, but mostly in New York. And that's when sort of, there was a sort of a rebirth of, television stuff in new york and we were able to do a lot of thing there was a lot of flash production going on you know flash is the software used for you know for 2d cartoons and that was a big thing for a little while and then yeah and then i sort of meandered my way i was very lucky because i've done i was you know one of the very privileged few who got to do a lot of work for studios up in canada which is not a thing um i don't know how much a lot of people know about this but Canadian animation production is a very big thing. There's a very big animation industry up in Canada. And that dates back all the way to the 60s. They're, they've always been very big on animation. And their National Film Board is also a very prolific part of 
giving money to independent animators and their government also subsidizes the industry. So, but in return for that, a lot of their studios require that their workforce, the government requires that their workforce is 90, I think 90% Canadian in order to get those, in order to get those government dollars. So it's very hard for an American or an outs, any outsider, you know, somebody in the United States or anywhere else to go up in Canada and work. And I've been able to do that. You know, I've worked for Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and Warner Brothers and DreamWorks, and I've done stuff for everybody. And then in in 2009, I was fortunate enough to um, end up at Sesame on the ground floor of that, you know, of that new division, which, you know, now we became the in-house animation team. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's how, that's how it played out. That's cool. I guess it's a sign of how talented you are that you have never really had, from the sounds of it, a break that you've had no job or you've had to, you know, do something else like go into graphic design or go into, uh, I don't know, being the guy on the on the sidewalk drawing caricatures of people or whatever. <laughs> uh, so. No, you know what? It's true. It's true. It's well. It's well. It's well said, man. I appreciate that. I had a month. A month. And I think that was the month before I started Sesame. I had a month where I couldn't find work. Right. That was, I guess that was like in the fall of 2009. Darkest before the dawn. That was just like, you know, you learn when there's those periods though, like just enjoy it because it's not going to last. You're going to end up working again and being busy and working 60 hour weeks. So, you know, just enjoy that after a while. But no, I've been very, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky with that. And, um, you know, it's like any other thing, I guess, that you do for a living after a certain, I think after you pass a certain period you know, let's say you get a certain amount of time in 10 years or something, it becomes a type of thing where it's like, you know, enough people and you've, hopefully you've established enough relationships and people like you enough to think of you for things. And then it becomes easy, you know, oh, I know so-and-so is ramping up on this project, give them a call or, you know, you'll get a call saying, oh, so-and-so recommended you. So the animation community is very, it's very tight knit. There's not really that many of us, especially working in TV, and, you know, we know each other, you know, we know the friend of the friend, you know, it's a very tight knit thing. So animation cool. is really, uh, it's pretty cool that way because we really do need each other because it can be very tough. You know, it's the entertainment industry. It's, it could be tough, but the way it operates always seemed like everybody, it's amazing because it's competitive, but at the same time, in the same breath, everybody really has each other's back, I feel like. And I think that's really speaks to the heart behind everything. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, if you think of an actor or an actress competing for a role or how cutthroat that must be, you know, it is, you know, animation is sort of a cutthroat thing, but at the same time, we're helping each other. And I've always been very proud of that. You know, most Mm. of the people I know in this industry are very cool people, you know. That's rad. So you're at Sesame and it's, I guess, a, a company that you've been a fan of in one way or another since you were a child, if you're like every other kid. But I think that you probably <laughs> had even more affinity for that show from from some of the stories I've heard. Yes, that's definitely true. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great point. So it must have been pretty cool to look around and, you know, see, you know, your fingerprints on some of those characters that you've always grown up loving and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Jono, because... Sesame Street, I should have really mentioned it already. Sesame Street was one of the big things that sort of drew me in to animation. Now, I loved, I thought puppets were cool. I thought Sesame Street, you know, Bert and Ernie and Oscar and all that stuff were awesome. And I thought, you know, we grew up watching The Muppet Show and all the Henson stuff, you know, Kermit and Miss Piggy and everything. But I was always really drawn into the cartoons. 
And Sesame Street in the 70s and into the 80s, the animate the little animated vignettes and clips were such a big part of it, such a big part of the heart of that show. And something that always really personally resonated with me. So a lot of those animated shorts in the 70s and 80s were those initial things that made me say, well, there's people actually doing it. People have to do this. People get to draw this stuff. That's what they do for, for a job. That's insane. That's amazing. And I always blame this on having a, a brother that's 10 and you know, almost 11 years <laughs> younger than me. But I watch Sesame Street. You know, I will I will cop to this. I watched Sesame Street until I was way too old to be watching Sesame Street because I enjoyed that. I enjoyed those little animated vignettes so much because it wasn't there's a special there's a sort of a special thing to them because what it's not an animated cartoon series where there's a lot of rules and there's recurring characters. These those little one off bits are so special because they got they sort of get to be I think they're kind of they're bound by less rules. And they could just be whatever they want to be. And sometimes they were really out there. And oftentimes they were educational. But, you know, sometimes they were just kind of weird little things. And I loved that, the independent spirit of those things. So Sesame Street, yeah, that was really, I don't, I try to always be mindful of that. That, you know, it's sort of a dream come true being able to be a part of that. Because it was such a big part of my upbringing and I think especially in this I know Sesame Street is still a huge thing today but especially being a product of the 70s and 80s Sesame Street was essential I mean that was just like who didn't know Sesame Street you know and it was it's a it's really um it's very very cool and very very neat to be a part of that now a small you know albeit a small part of it but I get to be a part of it so that's Mm. that's enough you get to hold the Emmy you know Exactly. They let me hold the Emmy. It's one three hundredth of it mine. If I shaved a little bit, if I took like a carrot peeler and shaved a little bit of that gold off, that could be mine, you know? And it's it says something about the show that it's lasted like 50 years, as you said, because yeah. I think back to when you were watching it, there was probably maybe one other sh- station or channel that you could watch for a kid-friendly show. Now, it's amazing. so much. There's YouTube, there's, you know, apps on your on your iPads and so many things happening outside of Sesame and PBS and Cartoon Network, whatever, like there's just so much for kids to get obsessed with. And there's always like a trend, whether it's like Paw Patrol or whatever, and then something comes along, Peppa Pig, and it's always changing, but Sesame Street's always been there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, it's a, it's, it's been a mainstay through all of that. And it's, it's, it's true. It's so interesting how things have evolved and especially have evolved now to, to today. You know, and Sesame Street being able to stay relevant through all of that is something that's really, you know, I I don't think it could be overstated, you know. And it's so interesting that they're, you know, in a way, you know, I say in a way, but really, really it's true. You have the main players today in Children's Entertainment, which, as you said, you know, as you well said already, you know, you have the YouTubes and you have a lot of these other things now that are a thing but if you just look at television and you look at Nickelodeon Disney Cartoon Network Sesame is right there with them you know beholden to a much different set of rules as far as the mm. educational standards and stuff like sure. that the educational requirements and the you know the education and research stuff that that we're kind of beholden to but to be able to compete with those other big players especially with the quality of the stuff that Disney Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network are putting out now um I think it says a lot you know and um 
you know, even now with the advent of, you know, direct to subscription models like Netflix, you know, and Ses for Sesame to stay relevant and sort of evolve. And now, you know, and, you know, now we're not only on PBS, we're on HBO and the way things have kind of sort of developed is, is interesting, you know, and, and it's neat that it could still be, uh, still be, you know, something that's relevant to children and kids even today, you know? Yeah. So Dagan, what would you say has been the hardest part of getting to where you are? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Well, you know, I'll say this. I mean, animation is a tough business because, you know, I'm a very type A guy in the, re you know, sort of in the fact that I like things to be organized. I don't, I'm not a big risk taker. You know, I'm not going to go to Vegas and gamble all my money away. That's just not who I am. <laughs> I like to have, I like to know where, you know, I like to know where things are going. I like stability. And, you know, animation is the entertainment industry. And a lot of the work is project to project. There's layoffs. Um, there's downtime. There's hiatus. And I think that for someone of my personality, you know, for as creative as I guess I am, I do have that side of me that, you know, besides having the mortgage and the family and all that kind of stuff, that's just who I am. I like to have stability. It gives me, it makes me feel like I have balance and then I could concentrate on the things I want to concentrate on. And animation makes that hard sometimes. Uh, working in this business makes it tough. It's hard to be, the fact that you could work somewhere for as long as I've been at Sesame is, you know, is, uh, it's rare. You know, it's not a, it's, it's a really difficult thing to sort of be given and be granted. So I'm very, I'm very, I've been very lucky. It could be very, animation could be a tough business. I think it tends to weed out the people that, you know, I don't want to sound shitty by saying this, but I think it tends out the people that think they love it, you know, sure. only the people that really love it stay in it because it could be difficult. And, you know, that those unanswered questions and that those hiatus periods and that that whole feeling of I know, you know, I, I've been doing this for 20 years, but am I going to am I going to be able to rebound after this hiatus? Am I ever going to get work again? You know, going through all those things is it could be really hard. But I think the reward is really getting to do what we get to do for a living is not it's not work. You know, it's it doesn't feel like work when you love it so much. So I think that you sort of have to take those checks and balances into consideration and just sort of, you know, when the, you know, the tide comes in, the tide comes in, when you have to weather the storm, you have to weather the storm. And that's just, I think that's the nature. I think, unfortunately, that's the nature of work in general right now. Yeah. You know, regardless of what you do, I don't think that sort of, I'm going to be at a company for 30 years and retire with the gold watch thing is really a thing anymore. I just don't think it is. At least it's not to the degree it once was. So I think that's what really makes it, I think that's the most difficult part of being in the business is just that sort of having to go through those periods and just knowing that you might be out of work for a little while. But when you love it, you just, you know, like anything, you just stay with it. Fantastic. Okay, so your advice to other people, whether it's animators or potential animators or people who just want to work in the world of, you know, the creative world, whether it's as the animator or as the, I guess there's a, a lot of similarities to to the people that are writing and all that kind of thing too. So what would be your sure. advice to those guys? You know what? I would the first thing I would say is just stick to your passions. If you if you're passionate in your heart about doing something, 
If you're passionate in your heart, in this case, about working in animation, learn everything you can about it. The cool thing about animators is, a lot of animators is, it's not just what they do for a living. It's sort of what they love to read about and talk about, oftentimes, not every, not everybody. But, you know, it's often what they like to sort of immerse themselves in. I, I would just say learn everything you can about it. Maintain that sort of passion for it. And learn about, and learn how to do it. Learn the foundations. Learn what animation is. You know, it's 24 drawings a second. How do I animate a walk cycle? How long... I want to make this thing fast. How many frames is that? If I want to make this action slow, how many drawings do I have to do? Learn the fundamentals, you know, sort of steep yourself in that, in the practice of trying to learn what animation is and then apply it to what you're passionate about. You want to work in video games, learn how to learn animation and then apply it to the software you want to use. You know, you want to work in television. What do you like? What do you want to go towards? You want to work in, you know, feature film? How can I get into Pixar? Sort of hone your sights on what you want to do and work, you know, prepare for hard work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work and it's going to be competitive. You know, there's a lot of people that want to do this. And I think with the proliferation of schools also teaching this stuff, there's going to be more and more people coming into it as well. And I think a lot of creative people are finding an outlet as well. And you know what else I think is really interesting? I think today more than ever, and I guess this is due to an open-mindedness and, you know, a certain level of awesome parenting and stuff like that. People are pursuing creative careers. Kids are pursuing creative careers and going to school for that and knowing they could do it. Where if you think about the stories that you hear in the past, like let's say you wanted to be an animator in the 60s. And let's say there's 100 kids that want to do that. How many parents would encourage them at that point to say, you want to do what? Like that doesn't sound like a thing. You know, go to law school. You know, I think there's a much more open mindedness now as far as encouraging your children, which I think is super cool. You know, encourage. I always had yeah. very encouraging parents, but you know, I was always very fortunate. But as far as like people realizing they could do what they want to do for a living, so just sort of be ready to be passionate, be ready to put together a great, you know, a great portfolio and a great demo reel, and you know it's going to be competitive, and try to find a way to stand out. And you know what, my biggest advice to people would be: Let's hear it. Be a human being. don't only concentrate on the art concentrate on and how skillful of an artist you are and how great you are as an artist which is which don't get me wrong it's a very very important part of wanting to be an animator and sort of being successful in this business and actually getting work but you know be careful with how you treat people be kind help you know once you get your foot in the door help somebody else get their foot in the door I will tell you right now, I will cop to being like a really hot-headed kid when I first came into the industry as far as, you know, I would leave jobs because I didn't think the quality was high enough. You know, I would pull I would pull my butt, like the creative director aside and be like, what is this shit? Like, this looks terrible. We can't put this out. You know, I'm like a 20, like a 23, 24-year-old kid, like pulling grown men aside and being like, I know this is your shop, but like, this is crap. We can't put this out, you know, and like being, you know, giving two weeks notice without having another job lined up, take every opportunity and get something out of it. Help somebody. I'm I'm fortunate to be in a position at work now where we have interns that are still, most of them have, are still in art school. Some of them are just graduated. 
I have a little less opportunity nowadays because it's so busy, but I really enjoy being able to talk to them and teach them and not only with the, you know, not only with the software and the skill-based things, but also just in saying like, how, you know, how you doing? Like, what can I, you know, you have, you need career, you know, they come to me for career advice. You know, what should I do? Should I, should I make the jump out West? You know, whatever it is, be helpful to somebody because what happens is you stake your reputation on not only your abilities, but you stake your reputation on the kind of person you are. And keep in mind that animation oftentimes, most times it's a team-based thing. You're going to be working closely with people. You know, there's storyboard artists and writers and fellow animators and designers and art directors and producers and animation directors, audio people and production managers and everybody. Everybody's got to work together and people want to have to want to be around you. You know, how pleasant are you to work with? You know, what kind of joy you bring into the workplace? Everybody has bad days, but how can you sort of lend to the atmosphere of a place? So that would be my biggest advice is work on work on your skills, work on standing out, but also just work on being a really cool person because that's going to earn you work, especially as you sort of grow a reputation. I was very lucky that I'm still friends with a lot of people that I started with because they basically put up with me. I mean, not that I was always like that, but I could be, you know, I could really be opinionated about it and you know, you kind of, I mean, I think a lot of that is also being young and you kind of cool down as you get older. And a Moriarty, maybe? Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, I just remember like going on tirades, like, you know, pulling a creative director into the stairwell once and being like, what? It, we can't send this to Nickelodeon. This is crap. Like, you know, yeah. and, and then being like shocked that somebody was actually like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you have to sort of, <laughs> you have to sort of, you know, sort of take every opportunity, take something from it. And, you know, and be cool, you know, be a good person, be kind, help mm. somebody, you you know, somebody's going to return the favor, you know, somebody's going to return the favor and remember you and remember you're a cool person when the next job comes up. So that's something that I would definitely, definitely recommend, <laughs> recommend. That's cool. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. hundred percent. You know. Be kind. That's some of the best advice you can give. Absolutely. So the last question before we do something a little bit different. Okay. If you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would that be? Hmm. That's a great one. You know what? I have to say something that, you know, I was given the opportunity by my brother, by Colin, to do a podcast with him. And it's so strange because I always knew, I was always, I was always, I was an early adopter of YouTube and but i always loved listening to talk shows i mean even before youtube i was like really super into charlie rose you know not that you know that didn't work out too well but that's a whole nother story i was really into charlie rose and the old dick cavett watching repeats of the old dick cavett show and i always really loved talk shows and i loved watching and listening to people talk about what they were passionate about i don't even it didn't even matter what it was you know, I always just, I always used to love people sort of having a rapport and having a conversation and sort of discussing the things that they were big on and that they that resonated with them and that they were passionate about. And I was always I always call, I always laugh. I always tell Colin this. I was always, I think, in the back of my head, sort of a like an armchair talk show host. You know, as people were talking, I'd say, oh, I would, you know, in my head, I'm saying, oh, I would have made this joke here or 
you know, I, I, I would have added this little tidbit about what I was discussing. And when Colin asked me to do a podcast, he approached me, I guess I did a fireside chat with him. I did a conversation with him about, oh, it was about The Last Jedi. And he, we did sure. the show together. And then he said, you know what? We should do a thing. Let's do a thing together. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And I have been enjoying, you know, I can't say how good I am at it, but I could tell you that <laughs> I enjoy doing it so much that early on it struck me like, I cannot believe I actually enjoy doing this as much as I love to draw. I never thought I would find another thing that I, I do love also to write. But mm. as far as drawing and writing, I never thought I would find something that I would love. I love that much again. So I would say in a perfect world, I would love to do, I'm very fortunate to do what I do for a living as far as creating cartoons because cartoons is what I really love. But if I could do something on the side, not even necessarily for money, but if I could do something and just be successful and grow a really big audience, I think I would choose to do, and I hope this could come to fruition someday. I would choose to do two things. I would choose to do a podcast or a, you know a, a series, video or audio, I don't know, just all about art, just art, you know, discussing art and the things that I love, discussing art in video games, discussing art in animation, yeah. discussing art in comic books. I would love to do sort of a, a podcast about nerd media with an art bent, shall we say. And sort That's of cool. also, I, I also really have been wanting to, and I've been really brainstorming and putting together ideas for a YouTube series you know, several YouTube series, let's put it that way, but YouTube series about, you know, the things that we're obsessed with in nerd culture and the things that we're passionate about in nerd culture. So an animated series and sort of grow it into a thing where it's just me discussing the things that make me me and the things that make me want to wake up in the morning. And that's what I would, and not fail. And not failing just means that I would reach out, be able to reach out and resonate to an audience like Colin and I are doing now with knockback, just purely discussing the things I'm passionate about. I mean, we already really do have that with knockback, but even in a more yeah. art specific <laughs> sense. So sure. that would be it. It'd be like a more, yeah, like you said, art artistic version of, of knockback, which exactly. I think, yeah, that, that would be really interesting. Like there's so many different styles of art to discuss. And like, I'd love to, for example, hear you talk to some other artists about pixel art and that kind of thing. Cause I yeah. love those old games and just the way that people can use pixel art now compared to back then is amazing. It's, I it's know. really breathtaking what people can achieve. And that, yeah, that would be, that, that would be, be awesome. To listen amazing. To. That would be amazing. And you know what you put, you give me, you, you put another element into that too, which I was thinking of also is that, you know, how cool would it be to sit down with the guys at Yacht Club and talk about Shovel Knight? Mm -hmm. You know, talk about, you know, sit down with the art director at Yacht Club and talk about Shovel Knight. You know, talk to the Cuphead guys about, yeah, yes. you know, the, you know, like that would be, how cool would that be? You know, and I, you know, is there, you know, would there be an audience for that? I don't even know if it would matter if it had 20,000 listens or 200, as long as it was resonating with an audience and people were enjoying it. So that, you know, I have to thank my brother for that because I don't know if I ever really would have had the opportunity to find that. I knew I loved listening to it, but I didn't know how much I would love being a part of putting on a show and talking about things that you're passionate about for an audience. And I love it. So that would be, yeah. you know, that would sort of be my dream, you know. That's cool. Yeah, I know like Rob Paulson does like a podcast with other voice actors about their craft. So I can see there's a, there being a niche audience for that. Really I got to cool. listen to that. I, what's that called? Yeah. 
Uh, I'm not sure I'll find it for you after. I'll this. look that up. Think, okay, cool. Yeah, because he's a, he's a he's a funny dude. A lot of those voice actors are. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned knockback because I want to end with something here that I've lifted from your show. It's a lightning sure. round, Dagan. Oh, okay, nice. This is uh, something that you do every knockback episode, and <laughs> I want to mention a few animated series, and I want you to give your opinion on the art style because. As someone that's just a regular consumer of these media, you know, you like what you like and you don't like what you don't like. But I'm very interested from the uh, industry expert on your take on some of these shows. And uh, how does that sound to you? That sounds fun. Okay, absolutely. That sounds amazing. And some of these shows have been on TV for a long time, so they may have evolved. And I'll let you speak to that just uh, as we go through. So let's start with The Simpsons. Uh, I... I, I will admit, I was never a big fan of The Simpsons. It never really resonated with me. Now, my best friend, my best friend in the world, is a huge Simpsons fan and, and always has been. And he would always try to sell it to me. You know, like, sit down and watch this episode. And I would always laugh. I always, yeah. I would always laugh every time I watch it. But there was just something about it that never, I don't know if it was, I don't know. I don't know if it was the primary colors or that the design is inherently <laughs> odd but it just never got its claws in me. And I would even go out and buy like box set DVDs that are, by the way, still in the shrink wrap because, you know, I would just try to, why isn't this resonating? Everybody loves this. Why isn't it resonating? It's odd, but that's my personal experience with The Simpsons, mm. despite my best friend devouring it, you know. <laughs> are you watching it too closely as an animator? Like you noticing things that are bad that other people probably wouldn't? I don't, you know, it's a really great question. I don't know. I think the humor, the writing is obviously amazing. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of respect for Matt Groening. I think he's just seems like the coolest guy. But yeah, I, I think maybe it is just, I think the visual elements of it are what initially put me off. And I know if you mm. look back at The Simpsons, I'm giving way too long of winded answers for a lightning round, but <laughs> if you look back at the Tracy Ullman show, Simpsons, and see how it evolved to today, the standard of animation and how much it improved and how much more beautiful it looks and everything, yeah, there's just something about it that never really... I don't know hmm. also if I just have an inherent thing where it's like, I can't like this. If it, it sounds ridiculous and it sounds super snobby, but I'm not trying to make it sound like that. I don't know if it's inherently a thing where it's like, this is getting too popular. I can't. <laughs> I see it in the post. I see a poster of it in every sure. stationary store. Every It's on everybody's t-shirt. I don't, you know, I think that Maybe you just sort don't of, like yellow. Yeah. You know, I, I think it unfairly <laughs> puts me, it's unfair to the Simpsons, but I think it just puts me off of it. You know, it's yeah. it doesn't feel special, you know? If everybody's yeah, in the know, how can it be special? I don't know. That's weird. We'll get into my my weird psychological. I'll lay down yeah. the couch and get into my psychological crap <laughs> later. <laughs> it, it is cool to kind of look at it as a evolution of animation in some ways, like with the shading and that kind of thing that they've done now. It's weird to, it's jarring when you are used to the old ones and you see a new episode. Yeah, it's so different, right? If you look at it back, back yeah. you know, how many years has that show been in production? Oh, 20, 25 or 20, 27 or something right now. God, yeah. so God bless it. Not not quite Sesame Street, but uh, th- this next one is uh, something that gets a lot of criticism for its animation, and I'm interested in your thoughts. It's Family Guy. Okay. You know, Family Guy, I think it's hilarious. There's a couple of interesting things about Family Guy, but um, I think what I always loved about Family Guy was the sort of paradigm that they do where they sort of do the cutaway. 
it could cut so, away. Yeah. It could be it's a, it goes on a ridiculous little departure, and it could cut away to anything at any time. That's brilliant. First of all, that's that's friggin' brilliant. That's ridiculous. Now, I'm my mind's blanking. What is the name of the guy who created Family Guy again? Uh, Seth MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane. He's an interesting guy because he's the first guy that I could really think of. Even if you think of like a like I don't know a John Chris Felucci or or Matt Groening or something like, he's the first guy to actually come and walk out in front of his cartoon and become a bit of a personality. So mm. he's interesting in that. Like he'll be on a celebrity roast and you know he'll be out in front of the camera, not just behind his cartoon, which I thought was really always really. I'm not sure how much I like him or dislike him. I'm just saying that's a, that's an interesting dynamic that he has a little bit of that Walt Disney thing going on with that as far as he's in front sure. of the camera. As far as the art style in Family Guy, though, I don't really have a problem with it. I think when it first came out, when did it come out? In the late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, early 2000s, yeah. It was a primetime cartoon based on a family, and it has a certain graphical style to it. I think automatically the parallels were drawn to The Simpsons, which I think was a little unfair, but I think that they had to expect that just because of what it was. But the animation style doesn't bother me. I mean, and the art, the art style is not my thing necessarily, quote unquote my thing, but it doesn't bother me. It's a it's a vehicle to deliver the humor, much like the Simpsons is. It's a it, it's a it's a look that fits well for that mold. And I do like the fast-paced nature of it as far as like the characters running in and out of the room and it sort of has a a quote unquote lean animation style. I really kind of enjoy that about it. And I love the I think the cutaway thing, like the first cutaway thing that I remember was the Kool-Aid guy smashing through the wall this it was sort of not a cutaway but like a non sequitur was the the kool-aid guy smashing through the wall in one of the early episodes and then bat you know so you remember that bit where and he slowly backs out it's like an awkward silence and he slowly (laughs) backs out and runs out like that's just that's hilarious you're you're it's a wonderful formula for humor for a show because you could literally do anything like that writer's room must be the easiest writer's room ever you know because you could just if as long as it's funny you can make it work so I appreciate Family Guy. I have a question though: Is is Family Guy still in production? Because I don't follow it. I think it is. It is. Okay. It's something for me where, like, you know, the cutaways were a fairly innovative technique at the time, but it's a bit like junk food where eventually you just get sick of it, and it becomes a bit too much of you know, it's relying on it a little too much. And That's interesting. Yeah. I could see relying on that too much. I could see being tempted to use it constantly. You know what I mean? Because because it's not only it's is it easy, but whatever's funny to you at the moment, you could work in. You know what I mean? So I could see that being dangerous. Mm. I could, yeah, it's a good point. I could see that being a thing. Sure. Now South Park, it's changed a lot over the years. It's, sure. I think it started as like a paper drawings, and now it's obviously digital because they turn it around in like yeah six days or something. Oh my god, it's so fast. Yeah, give South Park credit. I mean. The thing I remember being in college, it was probably, I don't remember exactly what year it was in the 90s, but I remember sitting down, somebody had it on VHS, that initial pilot that they did. And, you know, the whole, with the whole, what was the ice skater? Brian Altano, Brian Altano, whatever his name was. No, Brian, Brian, that's one of Colin's friends. Oh, that's IGN guy. Sorry, sorry, Brian. (laughs) Sorry, Brian. Whatever his name was, Um, the ice skater guy. And then Jesus was in it. Jesus was in the episode as well. I remember that pilot. But I don't remember exactly what happens, but I always remember it being hilarious because that was the first time, to my recollection, that somebody was just, it was purely, it was silly, it was hilarious, it was topical, but also it was almost like the art style was almost like an FU. You know, it was like, yeah. it's not about the way this looks. It's trying, about, yeah. 
it's about the writing and the characters. And I appreciate South Park for that. And the fact that they could create a hilarious script with hilarious characters. I mean, come on, Cartman just, that character never gets old. You know, it's brilliant in that sense that they could turn around so quick to actually make a show that's topical, an animated show that's topical. If it was done with any other aesthetic, they would never be able to do it. So they would never be able to get it done that quick and still be on top of that topical humor. So I tip my cap to South Park. I think that it's, I, I was never, I don't follow it. I'm not a huge fan that I'm like obsessed with following it, but I really do appreciate it for what it is. And I cop to not being, I haven't played the games, but the games are supposed to be amazing. Yeah. They're great. So great fun. They're much, it's just like playing the show really, which is just cool. That's hilarious. So this is one that you may not have watched depending on the last couple of years of your viewing habits, but have you seen Bojack Horseman? No, I keep seeing it. You know what's funny? I keep seeing him come up in memes and stuff like that, but I right. have never seen it. I have never seen have it. Have you seen the, the animation? I think so. I think I have seen what it looks like. I th- I know the style. I know the style that you're referring to, yes. Yeah. It was one that it kind of, when I first saw it, I didn't like the look of it, but as I yeah. watched the show, it, it definitely grew on me. It's a very stylized, kind of weird, you know, animals, anthropomorphic, but still kind of just as their animal form as well yeah it, it's weird but it works <laughs> it's so strange it's so strange really but yeah strange texture on on the horse on like bojack the main character he's got this weird kind of uh rendering i gotta watch i gotta watch it i, I definitely want to watch it now yeah. it seems it's like fantastic. the sort of style that again it's a it's a vehicle to deliver the humor it it fits for what mm. it is and that's the brilliant part about those, those sort of things you know yeah it's fantastic uh king of the hill or Beavis and Butthead. I guess they have the same animation style. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I, first of all, I love Mike Judge. I think that he's a brilliant man, and I think he's hilarious. I was just watching an interview. It's so funny that you bring it up. Because I was just watching an interview with Mike Judge yesterday. He was discussing Office Space. But again, Office Space, you know, that started as animated bits. So right. um, I love Beavis and Butthead. That that's actually that predates South Park, and that's another thing where it's like the visual. I don't know if it was really Mike. That was that might be more of a stylistic thing as far as just that's what Mike Judge's style is. But I feel like it, it was a little bit of a visual fu to like. It's not about Disney styled classical, beautiful, fluid animation. It's about yeah. this is a vehicle to deliver this humor. These kids are idiotic. Check it out. And you know what's a funny thing about Beavis and Butthead is? It's the first thing that felt, maybe one of the first, very first things that felt relevant. Like, it felt like, I know these kids. When you yeah. when I first saw that in high school, it's like, yeah, I know these kids. You yeah, know? Absolutely. Even though if you look at the drawing style, it's so strange and it's so odd. But what a brilliant formula because you're just like, yeah, these I was just with these two kids in history class yesterday, you know, (laughs) like it's like amazing how it resonates. And even though it wasn't necessarily, well, it was topical because they were making fun of music videos of the time Mm. of the era. But you know, that was one of the first, you got to tip. That's a great one to bring up. You got to really tip your cap to Beavis and Butthead and Mike judge, because those, those were so, so special and such a, such a little, those feel to me like such a nineties time capsule too. Like you can't have the nineties, 
and talk about 90s pop culture without talking about Beavis and Butthead. It's impossible. Yeah. All right. The last one, it's SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> My dad's a big fan. <laughs> you know what's so funny about SpongeBob? Do you like SpongeBob? Um, I haven't watched it a lot, but I was just saying my dad's a big fan. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's hilarious. He loves cartoons. Yeah. It's Oh, he does? Oh, well, he dad. watches The Simpsons. Oh, that's probably cool. More than more than me. And <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I, I that that's amazing. You, well, you know what's so cool about SpongeBob? It's a cartoon. You know what I mean? It is a cartoon. It's a pure cartoon for cartoon's sake. It's not trying yeah. to be anything else. It ha- it sort of harkens back to the the ridiculousness of like the old Looney Tunes cartoons, but it pushes it even further in a physical way. You know, SpongeBob could morph into anything. It's it's silly. It's hilarious. You know, the dramas are presented in a really melodramatic way where it's just so over-the-top silly. The characters are amazing. But the really the thing that's crazy about SpongeBob is the fact of its longevity because we started working on SpongeBob content when I used to be at a certain animation studio, and I think in 2000 I started there. Even before SpongeBob aired, wow. Nickelodeon was sending us tapes of, like, this is our new show. We expect it to be big. We, we did all like the online, like the web games and all the online content for SpongeBob. So we got to see it before it even aired. And I remember we had a VHS tape of like the first six episodes. And I'll go back and watch one of those first six episodes now and still laugh at it. Like that's how, and that, you know, that's another show that's come a long way as far as like the budget and, you know, what they're capable of and, you know, sort of the polish that, it, you know, if you look back now to then, but my kids love it. You know what I mean? Now I'm watching it in 2000. Now it's 2018. I have an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old. They both love it. My 7-year-old thinks it's the best thing in the world. You know, he never gets tired of it. You know, I'll see him come through things. Like, he's into Pokemon. Now he's into whatever he's into. You know, Teen Titans. Now he's into the... But SpongeBob is always a mainstay. And that just speaks to, I think, the pure joy of it. It's just a, it's just a silly, fun, light, cartoon with great characters and also has an amazing crew guys like Aaron Springer and stuff like that who have been on that show since the beginning who sort of lovingly help helmet and sort of keep it you know not only kind of shepherd it through and preserve the quality but also keep it sort of steeped in a certain tradition and a certain method and it feels the same you know Spongebob feels the same as it always has from now to then. And I think that's something that inherently resonates with people, even if they can't put it into words or are thinking about it in that way. It's a, it has a consistency that I think is, and a longevity that's very hard to achieve in animation. So yeah, SpongeBob is uh it's required viewing for everybody in the world. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. That's the, that's the lightning round. It wasn't very quick, no, but it was but enjoyable that's my and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's fine. Uh, well, you know, Dagan, thanks for joining me. It's it's a pleasure to hear the stories of, of, you know, how this has all come together for you and a bit of the insight into the world of animation. So it's really uh, cool and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, John, thank you so much for having me, man. Thank you so much for asking me to do it. You know, I, I, I'm flattered. I'm flattered to be, and I love what you do. I think it's so thoughtful. You know, your content is so thoughtful and the interviews are so enjoyable and they're so smart. And I think... Uh, yeah, I think you're going to be a superstar with this thing. So I really ah. appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Dagan. 
I'm going to be making sure you don't forget about that podcast idea because it sounds like a sounds like a hit. All right. Well, you know what? If you're if you're going to listen to it, then I'll have one viewer at least or listener. Yeah. So perfect. <laughs> thanks, dude. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Audio Technica. You can find Dagan over on Twitter at Dagan1973. Check out his podcast, Knockback. It's always a great listen. If you want to help this show, remember you can leave an iTunes review or you can pick up some sweet putting in work merchandise. All of that's over at 8bit.net slash PIW. That is A-T-E-B-I-T. And while you're there, you can check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective, Everything Nerd Culture. To follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.